Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hi there. Welcome to my interview with Luke Durbin of Oracle Investment Management. In this episode, we chat about Luke's investing journey, ethical investing, the investing philosophy and process of Oracle Investment Management. Luke also provides an overview of his best and worst investments to date. This interview was a great reminder of the importance of being open-minded, disciplined with evaluation and being intellectually honest. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Luke. Welcome to the Australian Investors Podcast. Hi, Raymond. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, doing very well. Ah, great. Great to hear. I know it's always a busy time of the year with half-year reporting season. So how's that um, going for you? Can't complain, really. Yeah, um, this week, I suppose it's been um, the the busier end, especially for um, for those managing our small-cap portfolio. Um, but yeah, overall, quite happy with with how it's gone, especially considering uh, everything that's going on. Mm, it's been quite volatile, so you could say <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> um, so we had a chat before, and I found out you're Newcastle born and bred, yeah. and you only got into investing when you're in like in your mid twenties. Is that right? Yeah, it, it was about then. Yeah, yeah. It'd be so great. yeah. Yeah, I'll, sh- I'll share the story. Um, so so um, I grew up in a house with a, um, a father as a stockbroker, so fi- finance was always sort of um, part of our life, you could say. Um, I won't say that it was overwhelming by any means, but um, it was always sort of there. Um, little discussions here and there, um, sort of little bits of what the market's doing, um, yeah, that sort of thing. And so it was sort of um, uh, high school, sort of um, got a bit of an interest, not not so much in finance per se, but in business, economics, that sort of thing, still sort of uh, working out what you want to do. And um, with a father as a stockbroker, I said, oh, I've got, got a bit of money, been working at Macca's for a few years now. Um, can, you, can you do something with this? And I sort of, it was very much... Um, Here's some money. You go do something with it. I um, so you could say that I sort of understood that investing uh, was important from pretty young age. You could say, um, and yeah, I recognise that uh, better than sitting in a bank. I want to do something with with this. So um, here you go, Dad. Here's here's some money. Go invest it for me. Um, and sort of alongside of that, around that time, I think it was about year 10 actually in school, um, the ASX, and I think they still do run this, I could be wrong there, but they, um, they run a school's uh, share market game. Um, and so a few of us from school had a go at that. Um, and I ended up coming in the top 10 in the state. Oh, wow. Um, That's yeah. <laughs> and so that, that was sort of a bit of a... Um, uh, a bit of it. Oh, this is um, started with this much, ended with this much. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty cool. And so I, I think I won a fifty dollars gift card or yeah. something like that. That would have been worth um, a lot of money back then. So yeah, as, sure a, as a sixteen-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember your stock picks? Um, no, I don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were 
a few rumours going around that I did have some inside help. <laughs> <laughs> Being a 16-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I, t- I took the win nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, oh. And uh, it, um, I think it, it even stayed on my resume far longer than it should have. <laughs> it's always good to have. Um, yeah. And I hear that, you know, finance is a big topic of conversation in the family household. Um, yeah. Yeah, it has been. Um, like even like in, in our family, uh, dinner was always uh, when everyone's home, sit down, we have dinner. Um, with the exception of when the uh, the finance report came on, uh, everyone be quiet, volume up to 110. Um, <laughs> <laughs> got to catch the finance report every night without fail. And, um, uh, I've uh, long since moved out, but I'm, I'm sure that still occurs. So back in the day, did you did your dad record it if he ever missed it, like record it on tape? I don't, and then... I don't, I don't <laughs> think uh, he was that extreme. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I understand. The name Oracle Investment Management um, had a different name when it was first established by your dad? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, my father is the founder uh, of the business. Um, And when it was founded uh, a bit over 10 years ago, it was founded with the name of Farnham. Um, And anyone that's been to our website or knows anything about us uh, sort of knows that we um, are big fans of Buffett in the the business. Um, And so Farnham Street is the street that Warren Buffett uh, lives on and has lived on for uh, many decades in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, And then so... Uh, when we, we changed the name to Oracle, the, the name was suggested, well, let's keep with the theme. We'll give another nod to Mr. Buffett uh, as the Oracle of Omaha. It's mm. a fantastic name. Yeah, um, it seems to work for us. The, there's no pressure, I guess. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess, Peter, your dad would have had a significant influence on your investing philosophy. Is that right? Yeah, you, you can say that. So when I was, so after the, uh, the early, uh, early investing teenage years, um, as, I st- uh, I, uh, as I worked a little bit more out in the field, I did a bit of uh, accounting and then a little bit at a software company, an ARP software company. Um, and then, yeah, as I started to um, make that switch into, from accounting into investing he said well here's um here's a few books um they'll give you a really good start um and so that was sort of him prodding me in the um in a certain direction but then now that I'm uh, well and truly a part of the furniture here at Oracle um just being a part of like investment committee meetings and sharing research and getting feedback um it's all um yeah all all been uh is, is been a big part of that for sure Mm. What's been the most enjoyable part of uh, being on the investing journey since you really got stuck into it um, in your mid twenties? The uh, the most enjoyable part is probably realizing how much fun it is. Um, like Warren Buffett talks about, he uh, he tap dances to work because he just can't wait to get into the office. And I, I, I sort of relate to that because mm. um, coming up with uh, investment ideas and then going down the process of working out is it a good idea is it not a good idea uh, 
bouncing the idea off uh, other mates who are into investing or even the guys that sit next to me in the office um, and then coming up with that um, that buy report, if you like. Um, yeah, here's, uh, here's all my work. Um, yeah, it's just it's, it's a lot of fun. So. Mm. Are the first few years a bit challenging? Like- oh, 100%. 100%. So I, um, even though I had uh, the background that I did, Learning, um, uh, learning the the ropes of how to approach that whole process. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a long journey, as it would be for anyone. No one, um, no one decides. Oh, I'm gonna I'm getting into investing today. I know how to do it. Um, so yeah, the, the first few years um, of my investing journey were yeah, uh, and like I'm still on that journey. Like however many years later. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think we all still are, like, in in investing, you, you're you always learning. There's always something new you can be understanding about uh, businesses or uh, changing industries or changing macroeconomics or whatever it is. There's always something. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's a, that's another part that, um, that I love about it. It's uh, no days ever the same. I like how you touched on... The many facets or the many factors that you have to consider when uh, evaluating a business and there's just so much information out there that you have to understand and absorb mm-hmm. um, is there anything that you do outside of work that uh, helps you i guess relax and get back into a into a more relaxed zone uh yeah there's probably a couple so i um i like to run probably three or four times a week uh before work or on the weekends, yeah, um, um, out on the uh, the Fernley track is my uh, my local uh, running ground, uh, running up and down there. Um, so that yeah, that helps clear my head, de-stress, all of that, um, and sort of gets me ready for the day. Um, the the other thing I like to do and um, is um, like to go camping, uh, heading off this weekend um, actually. So. Yeah, try and do that a couple of times a year and as a little bit of a holiday with the family. Yeah, Newcastle is a pretty good spot for camping. Like, you, you have so many places to go to. Yeah, ab- yeah. absolutely. So we don't go, uh, we don't stay local when we go camping, but, yeah, yeah. there's um, yeah, lots of great spots um, for, yeah, camping or not camping um, up here for sure. I guess you can combine both, like, you camp and then you go for a massive marathon. Go back camping. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite at the marathon level yet, but yeah, we'll, we'll see maybe one day. Yeah, uh, that's great. Um, I think that was a great insight into your personal journey and also your your background. Um, I think it'll be um, really good to understand what Oracle Investment Management is all about. Um, definitely in terms of the investment philosophy. Um, are you able to go through the overall structure of um, the firm and um, understand you handle three portfolios. Um, so the Australian Equities, Property, and also Ethical Diversified. Yeah, so um, you're, you're very close. So I, um, yeah, Australian Equities, yes. And the other two are a bit more collaborative. And so um, the ethical, we take ideas from the other portfolios. Basically, we, we negatively screen out um some of the um, the bad stuff, and then um, positively screen a few things in. We'll um, we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. I think. Mm. Um, 
but because because we take ideas from the other portfolios, it's very it's very um, collaborative. Um, so, um, and then yeah, property again, every, everyone sort of chips in, um, and then yeah, Peter, the CIO, sort of oversees the whole lot. Um, and then the uh, the global portfolio, we have uh, Nick Cummings running the show uh, as a portfolio manager, and then uh, Jack McGann, who's running the emerging companies, the small cap or small and mid cap portfolio. And the holding period across all these portfolios is quite similar, three to five years? Yeah, it's typically three to five years. We, um, like, ideally our holding period for a stock would be uh, forever or as long as we can. Um, in, in practice, we, we know that's not probably uh, practical for a lot of, uh, for our investors or a lot of other investors out there. So, yeah, we, um, um, and on top of that, you can't really put on the ticket uh, suggested holding time infinity. Um, so, yeah, th- three to five years is sort of what we, um, what we suggest and it gives the investors long enough for our strategy to play out for them to assess how we're going. I think we had this discussion earlier about how there's probably not as many um, high quality companies on the ASX compared to on a global scale. So I guess that's the reasoning behind um, the greater number of stocks in the Australian equities portfolio compared to the global. Yeah, that's right. So the, the global portfolio has uh, 19 stocks uh, at last count and it, it's been 19 stocks for uh, a good few years. Um, and the Australian equities ones are much closer to 40 or in that high 30s range just because um, the global portfolio, you do have a much bigger universe and there are higher quality companies in our view uh, that you can find. And because they're so much larger, we, we are a bit more comfortable holding those higher weightings and being uh, a little bit more concentrated um, at that end of town. Yeah, that's a really good point about the global markets because I think for an ASX company to really become a high quality company, it needs to really penetrate those overseas markets. Yeah, that's right. And I Yes and no. You can be a very good company and just stay in Australia. Um, and, like, don't get me wrong, there are still very good companies at, at the lower end of town. Um, yeah, but once you're, once you're uh, a trillion-dollar company, I think you're doing something pretty special. Mm-hmm. So I really want to find out and understand you know, what, um, what you guys look out for because it seems like you guys are bottom-up and really focused on high quality companies run by great management teams. So it'd be great to flesh out um, the overall process at Oracle Investment Management. Yeah, absolutely. So we we try and keep it as simple as possible. Essentially, uh, you've kind of stolen my thunder there, Raymond, but <laughs> um, basically, yeah, what we're looking for is high quality company, high quality companies uh, with good management uh, that we can pay a reasonable price for. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's really simple to say, but it's uh, much more difficult to do in, in practice. Uh, you sent me a couple of resources, um, and I think um, the audience would be familiar with a couple of them. Um, so you previously mentioned Warren Buffett Way had a mm-hmm. huge influence on you. Um, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits by right. Phil Fisher. Um, and also Howard Marks 
um, any, any of his publications and also his book, The Most Important Thing, um, has that really significantly shaped um, that overall investing philosophy for the fund that you, you manage? Yeah, so it's certainly shaped how I think about investing and it certainly um, certainly had an impact uh, in, in the business as a whole. So um, Howard Marks, for example, is a really smart guy. Um, and, yeah, I, I read anything that he writes. He, um, he publishes a memo fairly or somewhat regularly. Whenever he has something to say, I think is what he would say. Um, and they're, they're always worth reading. And then he's got a couple of books, uh, as you mentioned, that um, I highly recommend. Um, and then, yeah, The Warren Buffett Way, is um, that was the first uh, investing book that was uh, given to me to read. And it's um, the principles in it are quite foundational. Um, like, I, like I said, it's, um, we, we do try and uh, follow um, a bit of a Warren Buffett philosophy and pretty much that philosophy is contained in that book. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of finding investment ideas, um, how do you go about that? Is it a really structured process as a team or is it serendipitous? Uh, so it's a bit of everything. It, it's also it's structured, but it's also completely unstructured. So we do um, we do run screens for the sorts of things we look for. Um, so high return on equity, sales growth, uh, EPS growth, and then running running screens, and that that'll spit out a whole list of companies. That sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Um, it also probably depends on. Um, the, the size of the market that you're um, you're looking in, like that probably works better in the global portfolio than it does in the, the emerging companies portfolio, say. But then um, I actually get a lot of my ideas from just scanning ASX announcements. Like I probably spend the first hour and a half, two hours of my day just reading the announcements that are coming through and obviously um, very difficult to get to all of them, but you sort of get a feel for, for what you're looking for and you um, you get a feel for what, uh, what ticker codes probably not not interested in but then you, you sort you also learn which ones you at least are aware of and you ones that you're keeping an eye on so uh, that's another way um, another way is just um, like looking through the news what's uh, what's happening in the news um, and then just uh, chatting with people ideas come up uh, that they might come across something that's uh, good for me. And I'll have a look at it and vice versa. Um, yeah. And then probably the last one is probably the least structured is um, we're quite happy to steal ideas from, um, from other investors. Um, uh, we put our ideas out there. They put their ideas out there and no one's, uh, no one's stealing research, but I think it's a, it's a good breeding ground for ideas. Mm. I find your approach with um, looking at ASX announcements to be quite interesting um, so do you have a watch list of any companies that seem interesting to you and then you just add it onto the watch list and then you, you monitor it over time? Is that Yeah, pretty much. So anything that looks half interesting will go onto a watch list and um, we, we have a few a few um, tiers on the watch list. So there'll be, um, oh, that, that looks interesting. I'll put it on the watch list. Haven't done any work on it, but I sort of, it, it looks interesting, right? Um, and then... There'll be another layer where we um, we pick up something from that watch list. We go do a bit of work on it. 
we, we might even take it to uh, the investment committee um, and they'll say, go do more work on it or stop. And then so it'll stay in that next tier up. And then there might be stocks that either we've sold from the portfolio or we've done a lot of work into, but it's not at the right price. And so that'll go on to what we call like an approved stock list. So they'll, they'll just sit there waiting for a price, basically. So you touched a little bit on um, bring the idea to the team mm -hmm. and it gets reviewed. Um, it'd be good to get an understanding of um, the overall process sure. as to you know, running the company through the gauntlet, so to speak. Yeah, so once we've done that initial um, ideation, we'll, um, th there's typically uh, no, uh, no hurdle for if you want to do work on a company. It's just uh, sort of free reign. If you have an idea, go do a bit of work on it. Don't spend a month on it, but maybe spend a couple of days on it. Produce um, what we call a brief report. It might be um, a few pages with a few graphs and just a bit about the company. Uh, how's the valuation look on first glance? Um, how's the outlook look? Very uh, pretty high-level stuff, basically working out how interesting is it. And we're not trying to answer the question, do we want to invest in this company? We're answering the question, do we want to do more work on this company? So it's sort of that filter so that we don't waste time producing or spending weeks and weeks on an idea if it's never going to get through the filters. So once we've um, once we've produced that brief report, we'll, uh, we'll share it with the team. We'll probably discuss it a bit um, and then we'll get the green light to, uh, to go forward onto some, uh, some more deeper research. Um, so sometimes at that stage, the, uh, the committee will say, no, it doesn't look that great. Sometimes the analyst will say at that time, no, the idea doesn't look that great. I've done this work, but here's why um, I don't think we should go for it. All research is shared, whether it's a buyer recommendation or not. Um, and so, yeah, well, once, um, once we get that green light, uh, we'll go to that next stage and we'll spend, um, we'll, we'll do a much deeper dive onto um, uh, whether it's um, investable or not. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting because the brief is around four pages long and it's quite short. Mm. So I imagine you probably focus heavily on, heavily on a few key things. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it like a, the same funnel that you guys tend to go through? Yeah, so we've got a, um, a template for for the report which has uh, a few headings like um bit of a business overview we want to know a bit about the management how much they paid what's their experience how long have they been there do they own shares um and then a little bit on the fundamentals uh like how do the um how do the financials look are they growing have they grown are they expected to grow um what's the what's the outlook for the company uh, so again yeah is it expected to grow? What's the industry doing? And then, yeah, finally have a, um, a, a quick look at the valuation. Because um, if, it, if it's on um, 150 times, we, um, it's probably going to be difficult to get that over the line um, unless you're doing something pretty special with your, uh, your DCF. Mm. Have there been any situations where it's, uh, it's been so expensive, but the quality of the business is just so... Like it's so exceptional. It does happen from time to time. Um, like I said at the start, is we uh, we want to find excellent businesses. We prefer to pay a fair price, but sometimes you can't get a fair price. Um, and so, yeah, for those exceptional businesses, 
we are happy to, to pay up for quality when we believe that it's uh, you're probably not going to get the price that you would prefer to pay for. And so that's, um, yeah, that, that's only fair, uh, fairly occasional, but mm. yeah, it, it does happen from time to time when you want to buy that quality. Yeah. In those situations, do you tend to um, put on the burner and then wait until the right valuation pops up and then? Yeah, that, 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 that happens as well. Like a company, um, company like Adobe or Salesforce that are, yeah, high quality. Um, mm. And we, we're um, just waiting for that price. Um, yeah, that, that, that happens as well. There's, there's around six portfolio managers. Is that right? Uh, we've got four, uh, four analyst portfolio managers. Okay. And then you've got Peter. And then, yeah, Peter, who sits, Peter. Um, sits over the top. Oh, plus a, plus a fixed income analyst as well. You're right. Yeah. Um, so five um, overall. So I guess that... So you have to have a majority when it comes to choosing um, or evaluating, evaluating whether or not um, a stock idea gets through. Um, when it comes to those uh, heated discussions, probably not. It might not be heated, but um, it could be. Um, what What's the process in that respect? Yeah. So, like within any group, and especially in um, a group that's uh, managing money, yeah, disagreements. Uh, do happen and that's okay we we sort of encourage that the last thing you want is group thinking for a circle full of yes men um no one grows doing that and the portfolio probably suffers so yeah we um for and for anything that's not a slam dunk which uh really happens yeah we go around the table and we uh we ask for opinions and uh of hands or yes or no or whatever it is on the day um and yeah but basically it does get put to a vote, but everyone's opinion is heard. And that's uh, really important to us to avoid that groupthink um, kind of thing. And does the decision ultimately, is it ultimately made by the, the portfolio manager? The decision would ultimately be made by the, the chief investment officer, which ah, okay. is Peter. Yeah. Um, he doesn't like to play that card, but if he has to, he will. Yeah. <laughs> So just going back to um, stumbling upon high-quality businesses with ridiculous amount of valuation, um, it would be great to uh, get an understanding of um, your valuation process and approach. Yeah, sure. So um, we, the way we approach valuation is through the uh, discounted cash flow method predominantly because um, we believe that the, the value of a business is best ascertained through um, calculating, calculating the value of the like, free cash flows into, into the future. Um, it is, um, it's easy to do, hard to get right kind of thing because there's, there are a lot of variables that uh, go into it, um, especially in trying to come up with the right discount rate or whatever, and that's even before you've started to forecast uh, what, what's revenue going to be in a few years' time? What, what are the margins going to be? How much capex is there going to be? So um, we do we use it, but recognise that um, it's not a perfect model, and you do have to take every valuation uh, not with a grain of salt, but we do like to try and provide a range. So here's what the valuation would be in this scenario, but if they did this in five years' time. This is what it would be, and so yeah, I like I like to say, 
the valuation is between a dollar twenty and a dollar sixty or whatever it is. Um, good buying within there, and um, it sort of reflects the balance of probabilities a little bit more, um, just because uh, it is so subjective. Um, but then, like we also use uh, relative measures as well. Often we might do uh, like blend the two, and that's sort of a bit of a reality check because your um, if your discounted cash flow is showing a dollar sixty, uh, but your PE uh, rate, your PE valuation is showing thirty cents. Well, you've probably done something wrong somewhere. So um, by doing a few different measures, you sort of uh, you sort of get a feel for uh, where the truth might lie. So it's, it's more about getting a sense check and really understanding you know, the Absolutely. key drivers yes. of the yeah. business. Um, yeah. How do you go about forecasting the top line um, in terms of revenue? Yeah, you can look to a few things. Like often, uh, often management will give an indication which helps. Um, um, but then you can, you can also look at what have they done historically, um, being careful that, um, extrapolation is not a perfect science. That can only get you so far, but it, again, it can um, give you an indication. You can sort of see what the uh, like companies that put out quarterly reports or uh, they all put out half yearly reports, but um, that can help as well. And then you can look to um, what are competitors doing? Um, is it a better competitor? Is it a worse competitor? That can sort of feed into your thinking as well. And then uh, as a tangent, if that company's doing better, well, let's, hey, let's go have a look at them. Mm. Um, and then there's another idea for you. Um, yeah, so that, that, that's sort of where we start with, uh, with, yeah, with that sales growth forecasting. Yeah, so, yeah, when you talk about trying to understand the competitors, is it trying to understand the customer value proposition and working out whether or not that is better or worse relative to the company that you analyze? Yeah, essentially. So, yeah, when we uh, have a look at competitors, sometimes they're listed, which makes it easier, but sometimes they're not. So, yeah, it's looking at how much market share does everyone have, who's growing, and, again, if they're listed, that uh, that makes it a lot, e- uh, a lot easier. Sometimes you can find uh, industry reports or customer feedback um, that will give um, some indication. I remember when I was doing some research into Appen, uh, it was probably a few years ago, um, and there are a lot of YouTube videos of people in, uh, in their crowd, um, which is the one million people around the world uh, doing the grunt work for them. People were um, uploading videos of them like giving reviews on Appen or uh, Lionsgate, I think was uh, was their major competitor. Um, and so you, you watch a few videos and, again, you sort of come up with a consensus. In terms of competition, are there any times when you found it's just the companies had a, a strong first move advantage and then um, over time there's been a lot of competition? Um, what are your views on um, the change in landscape? Yeah, well, I guess the uh, the elephant in the room, you could say, would be Afterpay, who had a huge uh, head start in the uh, in the buy now pay later, and then ever since um, they, or when they when it was seen that they were growing so quickly, at least at the top line, a lot of competitors came into the space, and you um, you see that now. All you have to do is check out on Kogan to have a look at how many 
uh, different buy now, pay later and other payment options there are. I think they're up to something like 12 uh, options on the website, uh, which I found amusing. Yeah, it's um, not enough, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, but now in, in the space you've got um, like a whole host of competitors. No, I'm not even going to bother listing them all, but they're all trying to cut each other's lunch. Um, and I, even though the buy now, pay later pie has grown uh, quite significantly, I would guess almost by definition Afterpay would have a lower share than they did uh, even a couple of years ago. Mm. Mm. It's a very interesting case study, that one. Mm. It's still moving quite yeah. quickly, um, that space. Um, in terms of selling, how do, you, how, does, how do you guys go about that? So there's probably three reasons we would sell a stock. Like I mentioned earlier that um, our preferred holding time would be forever, um, but that's not always uh, not always possible, not always intelligent um, to do that. But so uh, the first the first one would be if you've made a mistake and you realise, oh, my investment thesis uh, and the research that I did, uh, I got that a bit wrong. Um, Realise that as early as you can. Um, and when you realise that you've made a mistake, um, yeah. Um, Do any examples come to mind where, it's, where you've been able to sell, sell really quickly and it's worked out favourably? Um, there was one. Oh, the, the, there's been a few. I can't think of any off the top of my head, sorry. Yeah, that's right. um, But, yeah, the, um, the other reason you might sell is if that investment thesis breaks and it might not be that you um you made a mistake in your thesis or your research maybe you did maybe you didn't but maybe it breaks um that that's a reason to sell it's like oh well something's changed in the uh in the business or in the industry that um a black swan event maybe Mm. um yeah that's a reason we might sell um and an example could be uh, Facebook comes out and announces they're going to invest uh, however many billions of dollars in building out the metaverse. Now, you may say that, well, that wasn't part of my initial investment thesis and five, ten years ago, I there's no way you could have foreseen that coming, I don't think. Um, but now that that's developing, that's going to impact their cash flows uh, and potentially the valuation. Uh, that may be... Uh, a reason that changes your investment thesis. Now, all that's, uh, I'm speaking hypothetically there. Um, But, yeah, that's an example of something that could change uh, or could break an investment thesis, depending on how you're thinking about the company. Mm. Um, And then the the third reason we might sell is simply if we've got a better idea. Um, We tend to stay pretty close to fully invested because we believe that our clients are paying us to hold stocks, not cash. And so we, uh, we try and tread that line as fine as possible. And so sometimes out of necessity, uh, we might uh, take a lower conviction idea to add in a higher conviction idea and we're quite okay doing that. Hmm. So I had a look at your portfolio, um, the Australian Equities portfolio, and seems like Goodman Group did really well um, yeah, that's over been the last a, a few great years. Pick for us. Um, it seems like it's one of those high-quality, resilient compounders that's really taken advantage of the um, te- e-commerce tailwinds. Mm. 
Um, so it would be great for you to discuss, you know, one, one or two of your most successful stocks, you know, so um, their respective industries. Yeah, sure. So um, Goodman Group, yeah, we, we picked that up, not, uh, not quite in the bottom of COVID, but sort of coming out of that um, later in uh, maybe mid-2020 um, because we, we took the opinion that COVID had accelerated that, uh, the e-commerce uh, thematic and the demand for distribution centres and everything that uh, Goodman Group provides was going absolutely bonkers. So, we, uh, yeah, we... We, it was quite thematic, the reason uh, why we, we picked those up. On it's picked a founder. Up is that, it's a founder. Like, yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that, that's a, an, another thing that it has going for it. But it was mainly that macroeconomic uh, yeah. trend that we, we, we sort of jumped on, um, jumped on early. Hmm. Um, and another one, um, uh, another one that we've been on for quite a number of years now, um, was car sales. Now, car sales, if you look at the chart, it goes up and then it has a pullback and goes up and has a pullback. Um, but we um, sort of recognise that um, this, is, uh, this is a high-quality company. Um, it's got very good margins. Their market share is um, miles above number two uh, in Australia, uh, which all feeds into having uh, very good uh, return on equity, and because of that market positioning, they can pretty much charge whatever they want. Um, I say that a bit flippantly, but they do have that pricing power, which is super important to us uh, in finding a uh, a good a good business to invest in. Um, and so they've had very good uh, growth throughout their history. And I think it was the 2018 pullback that we uh, we first. Uh, I first had a go at that. I don't, I don't recall that it was bargain basement cheap even at that stage, considering like where the earnings were and, and whatever else. But it was one that we recognised. This is uh, this is a good company um, with very good market positioning that yeah we think it fit our philosophy very well. So at that point in time in 2018, it seemed like at a pretty good market position. What do you think it came down to? Was it because had a really strong first move advantage because I think back in my day, I think that was the only site that was pretty much available and it just dominated web traffic. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, people out there on the internet, but um, I'm fairly sure they were born out of the newspapers. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the, they, they jumped on the online trend very early. Uh, much in the same way that uh, realestate.com and Seedgid, which are also holdings in the portfolio, uh, yeah. which with much the same investment thesis. Yeah. Hmm. Do you find these kind of businesses where they've already developed a really strong first move advantage that management probably becomes less important? As in management, no matter who comes in, it as long as they... Um, keep growing or um, getting that first move advantage uh, stronger um, doesn't really matter? It's a really good question because it sort of it comes down to once they're at their um, that maturity or approaching maturity uh, stage of their 
business, uh, where do you start allocating that capital once you've got more than you can handle? And so um, if you get um, a piece of Vegemite toast running your business, um, they'll probably run it into the ground. Um, but so I, I do still think it's important to have good management, um, even, even once it's been very established, like it probably would be difficult to, to run it into the ground, um, to, be, uh, to be fair. But I still think management's um, yeah, important because yeah, you've seen it across um, the, those three uh, businesses I mentioned, Seek, REA and Castendales. Mm. Once they got to a certain market penetration, they all started going overseas. Mm. And that um, is a really important capital allocation decision. Um, some, ma some managers may have just paid out those um, the excess cash in dividends or share buybacks, and uh, that might have been fine, but managers tend to like growth. Uh, and often if you, if you can't, if it, or if it's harder to get that explosive growth uh, organically, they you start looking for um, other ways to do that. No, I, I, for the most part, not 100%, but they've done reasonably well uh, mm. at doing that mm. as a broad brush statement. Yeah. So once these companies go overseas, does it become more challenging for you to get an oversight on the performance of those markets? Yeah, it does. And it depends on disclosure as well. Like car sales is actually quite good at that in their presentation. So um, they'll spend a bit of time, on, well, probably the, most of the time on the Australian business, but then they'll have sections splitting out uh, like revenues and EBITDA um, for the international businesses as well. So, well, that, that certainly helps. But yeah, there's certainly... Uh, limitations uh, put on you uh, because it, I don't speak Spanish, so it's hard for me to go and see um, or have a look at the um, the South American uh, car sales, for example. Um, just one silly little example. But, yeah. yeah, I guess enough about the great companies. <laughs> about the the more interesting ones, which are um, the I guess. Um, the mistakes. Yeah, so probably uh, it's fairly fresh. Um, we um, we had some A two milk. Um, we haven't for some time now, but we we um, we wrote that down probably further than I would have liked. Um, and that, and that was probably an example of one that when you look at the historical financial metrics, looks uh, looks excellent. Um, probably one thing they did didn't have is they had a bit of turnover at the top, um, which sometimes can be a, a bit of a red flag, but uh, you look at, look at their results up until a couple of years ago and it's margins of 30% uh, um, EBITDA margins, uh, return on equity would, would have been plus 30%, um, growing strongly driven by that, that China market and then um, even even through COVID, looked like they were going to benefit, and then um, uh, a few things sort of happened. Travel travel stopped, which impacted a lot of their um, their grey market exports, um, among many other things, which I won't go into. But yeah, eventually we realised. Well, it looks like this investment thesis uh, is broken, or we made a mistake. Doesn't really matter which one, um, and we pulled the pin on it. It's a it's definitely an interesting one, and it's caught um, the attention of a lot of investors. Um, I think 
very interesting thing about is that in the current state there seems to be so many more alternatives to you know there's goat goat's milk there's um so there's a large variety does that how do you think about that um yeah there, there are more alternatives but i think one of the things uh that went against them was because um because China was such a big part of the growth and the business, um, the Chinese Communist Party started pushing their Made in China program. And so that, that was that's one thing. Eh? Um, so mothers and parents started preferring the other brands. But then um, you have a look at the birth rate and it's fallen off a cliff. And so mm. there aren't as many babies being born. There's not You're not going to need as much uh, infant milk. So... Mm. Um, it's just been a uh, an absolute storm of uh, bad things happening to them. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'm sure they'll uh, recover at some point, but at the moment, uh, there's not enough going right in it for us. I'm going to change gears here and move away from the Australian um, pure equities focused uh, discussion and onto the um, ethical diversified. Yeah portfolio um, so i understand in 2020 you released this new portfolio um it was in the middle of covid um is that right yeah it was uh yeah it was definitely post covid um but yeah that, that didn't stop us but the reason why it was launched it wasn't any brilliant idea that we had it was just that people were asking for it and now when you've got a client base of people saying oh we'd, we'd like a, an ethical uh, ethical labelled um, option, we say yes. Mm. <laughs> we were, like, of course, we we will create that. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that that was that was the origins for it. Does it hold? I think it holds a similar amount of positions. Yeah, it's it's probably higher. It's probably closer to fifty. But that's because we also it's a um, like a diversified model, so it has a. Um, a balanced uh, investor risk profile sort of overlaid on it. So there's, there is an allocation to fixed income uh, mm. inside it as well. Um, so that, yeah, that pushes the number of securities up, but it's in terms of equity positions, it's probably still around that 40. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it would be more, um, more, more spread. How do you go about um, screening um, for these ethical companies? So where we started, we actually started with our existing portfolios. We, uh, we try not to reinvent the wheel wherever possible. And so we started by negatively screening um, our own portfolios. So we got there's a few obvious ones. So like, well, Aristocrat Leisure and uh, Jumbo Interactive Endeavour Group uh, with their alcohol, uh, they're like clearly no goes for, for an ethical portfolio. And so we started by yeah, negative screening on things like that. Um, and then there's a few other ideas in there. So, so in that regard, it's like a bit of a best ideas portfolio across the, um, uh, across the other portfolios. But then there's also a, um, a selection of stocks uh, that we positively screen in on things that are not just not being bad, uh, but positively contributing to the world we live in. So we've got uh, a couple of uh, wind farm, like renewable energy utilities in there. And we've got uh, a company that is the world's 
uh, only cystic fibrosis drug, uh, which is changing people's lives. And then uh, we've got uh, one more example I'll give you is um, solar, solar panel inverters for residential and commercial buildings. Yeah, I think I found those ones quite interesting. Um, I think Vertex Pharmaceutical mm, is the one, the one. Yep. on um, the fibrosis treatment, which is trying to develop a drug to tackle, um, I think, issues with digestive systems and, and lungs. Is that right? Yeah, so I, I won't pretend to fully understand the, the science or the, uh, the actual affliction of the disease, um, but I do know one or two people that, um, that have had it and I know how, how much it can, can impact their life and uh, how much it can change someone's life. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I did the research. Uh, I did the research into this one and found that they, it was a pr- the, first, the first version of it was approved for adults in the US uh, probably close to 10 years ago, I think, and ever since, might not be that long ago, but um, ever since they've just been rolling it out to more age groups uh, in the US, uh, more geographies, and then more age groups and more geographies. So they're all over Europe. Uh, at the moment, they're trying to get it. They've got it approved for use in Australia by the FDA, but they haven't got funding approval for it yet. So that's uh, there's sort of two two hurdles there uh, to to get over. Um, and so yeah, hopefully one day it is um, that it, uh, the government will um, will approve that funding as well, like it is in a few other a few other companies. And yeah, you look at. That's that's exactly what's uh, driving the growth in, in the business. Hundred percent agree, and fingers crossed. Yeah, I did notice that the Australian equities portfolio and the um, it had a. I think the biggest allocation is towards healthcare. Is that right? Yeah, that would be right. Yeah. It, it changes from yeah, but healthcare would be our, one of our biggest holdings uh, exposures. Yeah, and you did mention that you you knew two people. I guess within your network, who um, has that um, technical knowledge? So, um, do you rely on your network quite heavily? Um, is it quite important to your investing strategy? Um, I probably wouldn't say that I relied on uh, anyone external. No, um, it's just that Australia uh, ten well, Australia does have, and the ASX has um, quite a few just high quality healthcare companies. So I think we've got six of the biggest seven healthcare companies uh, on the ASX, just because uh, we, we do have quite a good innovation uh, culture in Australia and the right environment um, that uh, does fund uh, those sorts of early innovative ideas like uh, Cochlear, for example, is one we've helped for quite some time. CSL uh, is the same thing. Um, you know, we've held quite, for quite some time. That's quite a big allocation in, um, in both portfolios. Mm. Sorry, I digress because we're moving away from ethical <laughs> investments and back to Australian equities. That's okay. Um, but to bring it back, to reel it back in, um, I found Levisa IDP Education to be uh, really good examples, I think. Yep. Yeah, so they're um, yeah, two examples um, that were yeah portfolio uh, holdings that we've held for quite some time in the um, in the 
original Oracle portfolios and examples of ones that were like, there's um, no ESG problems that we can see in these portfolios uh, growing quite strongly. Uh, so they're an easy candidate for the for the ethical portfolio on those grounds. Mm. And I found Oz Minerals to be uh, a bit of a surprise there. Um, can you maybe explain why that perhaps made the cut? Yeah, so it's a, it's a similar similar thing. We, we've had uh, had Oz Minerals for uh, close to three years now. Um, quality copper miner, and you, you could argue contributing to the um, like the battery um, and the electric vehicle movement, which is moving away from the use of fossil fuels. They're, they're sort of contributing to that um, that industry in that way. Yeah, I think you had one more. Uh, I think. Northland Power. Yeah, North, Northland Power. So they're um, they're a large Canadian company, uh, renewable energy, uh, about 85% wind farms and yeah. about 60% of those are in the North Sea uh, yeah. in in Europe. And the, um, the reason that Northland made it into the portfolio, that came from a screen. Yeah. Um, and it was one of the very few uh, renewable energy companies that I could find that actually looked profitable. And so that okay. was, um, I was quite in, impressed by that because they are very capital intensive, but they get um, they get very long-term contracts. Oh, okay. And so they, they, uh, they do take on, sorry, they do take on a lot of debt, but they can do that because they get these uh, 10, 20, 30-year contracts and so they although they are a renewable energy company they act as a utility yeah so would you say the ability to lock in really long-term contracts and big contracts is their point of differentiation compared to its competitors who are more capital intensive and are are struggling to to get those long-term contracts yeah it, it probably is. And to be honest, in a, um, in a utility company, your relationships, your ability to find those contracts um, is obviously make or break for you. So they've got the, the contracts that they have are typically with governments um, and typically in these sorts of companies, you need that agreement first before you can get your funding. Um, and you, um, I, I did some work into GenX Power, which is Australia, an Australian-listed company doing a similar thing. They're a lot earlier in the journey, but yet they, um, they've taken on quite a lot of debt, but, and they're, but they're only able to do that because, um, because they got that, um, that 30 years of revenue locked in first. Yeah. Very interesting. Hmm. So for these type of companies, how do you monitor whether or not they still meet your um, ethical criteria and threshold? Um, so it, it, it's an ongoing thing. So they generally put out a sustainability report, which is um, the, the first place you look and any red flags should come up in those. Um, thankfully, so far they haven't, um, but it's it's all just ongoing through the reports that um, that they put out. Um, at, at the same time, they're all um, it's a pretty young portfolio, and so thankfully, in eighteen months or whatever it is, yeah, there haven't been anything uh, come up that's required us to sell. Mm. Um, Having spent 
I guess, few more years um, in the Australian equities portfolio, more so than the ethical one, which is quite still quite green. Um, do you find it? Do you find it more fulfilling? Um, just going through the process of trying to find uh, companies that are more more ethical and benefit um, stakeholders. Never actually thought about it like that, but um, yeah, it's a it's a good way to think about it because um, you are providing capital to these businesses that do contribute to it. So yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't know that I'd use the word fulfilling, but yeah, it is good to be sort of contributing to um, to companies that are doing good in the world. I guess it feels much better than investing in really bad companies like coal and power. <laughs> so it's all relative, yeah, we, I guess. We don't we don't have any coal in the ethical portfolio. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> um, so I think it was really good to uh, chat about, you know, the origins of Oracle Investment Management, your personal story, your investing philosophy and, and process, um, the Durban family. Um, like all my other interviews, I'd like to ask you, uh, one final question, and it's probably the most important one. Um, who's had the most influence um, on your investing career um, on a personal and professional level? Yeah, it's probably no surprise given uh, given the history, but uh, I have to say that um, my dad has had the biggest influence on uh, on me in that in that regard. Like as a person, yes, but also particularly uh, on my investing journey, and then probably the uh, the corollary to that would um, second most obvious statement I'll say today is probably Warren Buffett as well, um, just because um, I, I quite value his approach to investing, um, and almost just because a lot of the um, the books and the collateral that I that has formed my thinking have been derived from other people watching him and writing about him um, just because he's been so successful. So we, we try not fanboy too much over Warren Buffett, but it, it is quite remarkable what he's been able to build over his lifetime. Yes, I 100% agree. Um, I was definitely expecting that answer. And I think it's a, it's a very good answer, I guess. Um, but I think your investing philosophy and your investment approach is, is very reflective of Warren Buffett. Um, I think it's, it's still early days and you guys are going pretty well. Um, it seems like you haven't aged at all. So I, I assume that it's, it's not stressing you out too much. So, but. It depends on um, the day. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for coming on to the Australian Investors Podcast. I think, yeah, the investing community will. Uh, learn a lot from you and are quite eager and excited to see um, how you guys go in the future. So uh, thanks. Thanks, Luke. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Raymond. And if people want to follow you or reach out to you, what's the best uh, contact details? And Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm simply at Luke Durbin um, or our contact details are on the website, which is oracleim.com.au. You can find us there. Awesome. Thanks, Luke. Pleasure. Thanks, Raymond.